everybody. Welcome to T.O.'s Roadhouse. In the house with Spencer Crandall. Man, how are you, brother? I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. So, uh, interested to talk with you and kind of see what your story is, man. So, you've uh, you've come to TikTok fame. Yes, that's what they tell me. It's a yeah. uh, crazy time to be in the music industry, for sure. You know, one of the things that, that we've been wanting to try to get our heads wrapped around, and, and some of the reasons that we've asked a lot of the younger artists on yeah. this podcast, is I really want to get some some comparisons to the music industry that I knew 30 years ago and the music industry of the 2000s and forward since American Idol and The Voice and all that sure. stuff over the last decade, couple of decades, and then where we are now uh, because I think there's there's a lot of different things going on in the music business now that we had before. You know, I've even heard rumors that labels won't even look at artists unless they have so many uh, social media views across mm -hmm. their platform. Um What's your stance on, on going to a, to a major label at this time? I know you had great success on socials and a lot of Spotify spins. And yeah. So what, what's your feelings about going forward? Those are all really great questions, obviously. A bunch of them. So yeah, no, no, unpack no, no. It. I'll fire off. I mean, <laughs> it's, like I said before, it's a weird time. It's an interesting time. It's a great time to be an artist. Um, but we're kind of living in the Wild West, right? Like yeah. back in the day or whatever, um, it was pretty clear the path to take. It was a major label. You get a song on the radio, and hopefully that does something. Rinse and repeat. Um, I've been able to do what I've been able to do. For those of you who don't know who the hell that I am, uh, I went to go play some college football. I got two shoulder surgeries. Had no idea what to do with my life, and I pick up a guitar in my dorm room, and I start learning some chords, learning some covers. I start writing music. It feels like free drugs. It's the best thing in the world. I'm like, I just want to do this forever. And I was like, how do you do this, especially living in Colorado? And I saw guys like Kane Brown and Luke Combs just posting stuff on the internet. So I just started cover song Friday and cover song Tuesday, whatever. I just post all the time. And I was on early Instagram, early Twitter. And then I, I was on early TikTok kind of before it was a thing. You know, yeah. I had a lot of my peers kind of making fun of me at the time being like, do you really want to be the TikTok guy? And I was like, I don't think the blah, blah, blah guy thing matters. I think it's just finding real human beings to listen to the music and come and buy real tickets. And um, so it worked out for me and it, and it translated. Now, you know, that's the very quick version of how to, how I am, where I am now. I think I'm completely, I'm completely independent. Um, I have a booking agent and that's great, but I don't have a major record label. Um, and like you were talking about now, major record labels are going to artists and saying, can you, make it happen on the internet for so, us. So give me give me this this rundown of what you have. So so mm -hmm. let's talk about the spoken wheel system. Put yourself as the hub of, of your whole career. Yeah. What are the how many spokes are there in, in your immediate circle? I mean you mentioned booking agents. So tell me tell me what makes your wheel turn. The things that you feel like are necessary as far as publicist, social media person. I mean what do you have inside that wheel? Yeah, we have a uh, we are lean and mean, and I think that's kind of what this whole conversation comes from. Is yep. it used to be you would give up a massive share of your life and career and masters to go join, you know, not pun not intended, a big machine, right? Like yep. you would join a thing that was they have everything in house, and now it's me and my manager Jeff, who we've been together since I was literally in my dorm room before he should have ever started working with me, he saw something in me that, you know, we, we so started. So was he a college buddy or somebody you met? Man, kind of a weird story. Like, 
Uh, I mean, I keep jumping around, but it, I'm just it's oh, all yeah, going to yeah, line yeah. up here in a little bit. I think you're right. So Jeff and I met through my mom just trying to be a good mom and was like, I told her, I feel like I need some help with this because I'm doing this alone, talking about being yep. the hub, the CEO of, of your company. And So Jeff was a guy that um, – Stick with me here. This is an actual story. My mom knew a lady in Florida. Her son was the youth pastor at Jeff's parents' church. <laughs> okay. And Jeff had been working with his college roommate, uh, which was a guy named Jefferson Bethke, who's now a New York Times bestselling author. At the time, had a viral YouTube moment that Jeff was helping manage. So she was okay. like, I don't know how to help, but maybe this guy can. He's kind of getting into management. Jeff and I just started like, two guys who had no idea what we were doing and just built it by ourselves, which I think is really special. And, and now we've kind of come to this point, which I think is really rare to go nine years without a label to be selling the tickets and the streams and stuff that we have. So we kind of feel like a case study in a lot of ways because we're hacking through the jungle where people haven't really gone before. And that kind of brings us back to the label conversation because we don't really know what we need because we're in a different place than a lot of people. The traditional record deals, right? We're like um, these, like three sixty. We're gonna take kind of a slice of everything because you'd rather have ten percent of a billion than a hundred percent of whatever you can do. Um, but now, you can also give yourself away real quick and get locked up for several years if something doesn't happen, and then then you're done. Hundred percent. And and I know so many of my friends who pre, I would say. Before the maturation of the internet, especially where we are now, yeah. they maybe they weren't impatient, but they they felt like the only road was the traditional road, and they signed these deals and they've put out three songs over the course of six years. They're miserable. They are making way less money on the stuff that they now have to bust their ass to do anything with anyway. Because all my buddies are being told, "I can't take you to radio unless you're having a moment." Well, what do people mean by having a moment? Right now, they mean going viral. And so that can be really frustrating for people who signed up for a system saying, we put out music, we'll go to radio, we'll take you to number one. And they're like, sure, that sounds like the dream. And now that system that they signed up for has kind of been flipped on its head. And so now Jeff and I are, I feel like the best analogy is like, it's like getting married. Of course I want to get married. Of course I want to sign a giant record deal that feels great. I just don't want to do it to do it. I want to do it because it feels, the word I use all the time in my career is undeniable. One of the things that I identified early on in my career, so so just as a comparison, when I got signed back in the early 90s, uh, you had the typical label structure. So you had a label head, and we were, the the label that I was with was a, a, a spinoff basically of what Warner Brothers was. Sure. We were in the WIA distribution network. So all the records that were that were manufactured, Warner Brothers was the parent company. You had Atlantic, you had Asylum, you had uh, uh, two or three other ones that, that were around at the time. But you had the typical structure. You had a promotion staff, you had a, a head guy, four or five regionals, you had a sales department, you had a, a publicist, uh, you had a label head, so you just—it was very, very small and very contained because you knew the things that needed to be done. Right. Now we're at a place where there's so many more pieces. There's so many other ways to reach the masses out there that that I think all the stuff that's going on in some ways is turning the record industry on their heads. Because from your perspective, looking at it, you've got to say 
do I need all the things that they're providing? Does that really fit the direction that I'm on? And if I give myself into that situation, what do I get in return except giving away 33% of everything that I freaking have and wind up being on a shelf for three to five years? So, you nailed it. So, so here, but here's the question. What's the long-term payoff for you? Because what I got out of it was a body of work that I can work off for a long time. And, and the, what I struggle with in the system since I've been off of major for several years and I'm, I'm doing the streaming and I'm doing the other things, I, it's hard for me to gauge what I'm having impact with. Mm -hmm. And so I'm putting out all this stuff all the time and my, my, I don't really know which things to perform it. So I kind of gravitate to things that I just like and just keep pounding them out. How do you gauge those things when you don't get to experience what it's like seeing a record go up the charts? How do you gauge what you're having impact with? Yeah. I mean, uh that's a great question because we're always asking like, okay, that, that video got 8 million views, but what does that mean? What does it mean? Right. Does that actually equal a one for one human being following? No. Did they just click on it? Right. It's a click. It's a view. Now is a share equal a ticket? Does a comment equal a stream? No. But what we're always trying to do is I kind of use the internet and a lot of its platforms, in my opinion, like the Titanic. So I know these things are going down or they're going away or they people need to get off of them and get to Spencer Crandall Island, if you will. Yeah. So I'm sending them on life, lifeboats via Spotify and we have a text list that we've, we've built and Instagram and these other places so that hopefully you can capture them from a passive viewer to what I would call like a, a super fan. We, we want to get people into our infrastructure, not just like on the outside looking in, like to really dive in and to become a streamer, to become a ticket buyer. So that's what we've seen. You know, this is where it's an interesting conversation because although I don't have chart metrics, like just straight up radio traditional numbers or whatever, what we do have our ticket sales and streaming numbers that outdo a lot of my peers or some of my peers, right? Who are doing those things. So it's really interesting because one doesn't equal one anymore. I think the reality is I can control making what I think is incredible music, marketing the hell out of it, and then trying to get people to buy in on me and my story above just, oh, that's a guy that sings a song. I want people to say, that's Spencer Crandall. Like they're telling their friends, like, this is a guy that I love and, and, to take someone from even a fan to like a friend, you're not going to miss your friend's concert. You're going to actually pre-save your friend's song. So to do that, it's storytelling. It's to let them into your heart. It's vulnerability. It's doing all that on socials. It's trying to get people to show up on the day that you're in their town. That to me is still the stuff that we can talk about the ways and the channels and all those things, but still what matters the most is the stream and the, and the hard ticket, I think, is, is kind of the undeniable. Here's the scary thing about something you mentioned a while ago about, you know, everybody wants something to go viral. Mm -hmm. uh, once you get that thing to go viral, if you really don't know how it happened, how do you follow it up? Totally. That's the million-dollar question. My friend Trey Lewis, you know, he had a mm -hmm. massive record with that thing down in Dallas. And, and you know, I love him to death, and it was a great impact. It had huge streaming numbers. How do you follow that up? It's almost like having achy, breaky heart, Billy Ray in the totally. early 90s, and then he, you're not able to follow it up. But at least there, it seems there was a system in the place that goes back to this being like the Wild West. It's, right. it's fascinating trying to wrap your brain around, okay, this worked. How do I do that and and get some kind of – 
flow going where you kind of have things where you kind of can build that body of work up. I don't have the answer. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think we're all still trying to figure it out. Luckily, I, I have. I had a moment as TikTok was launching off that really changed my life. And then you definitely have the thoughts of, am I going to be the guy who sings the one song that popped off in that one tiny period of COVID or whatever? Um, luckily, we now have had a few songs and four or five, you know, at the end of our set feels like we've gone to country radio or that we've done some of those things. I don't know why we've been able to do that and others can't. Is that luck? Is that virality? Is that getting people to these other channels so that you can really feed them and they turn from fan to super But, I, but fan. I like what you said about really being able to bring them in as a family member instead mm-hmm. of this just being about one song. It's bringing them into the culture of who and what you are. Correct. The, if I think about the people who I love the most, yes, it's about songs. Songs win forever and ever and ever. But I think it is about who they are and what they stand for and what they say time and time again in building a culture of fans. You think of a guy like Kenny Chesney, No Shoes Nation. He stands for something by saying those things, right? And I think those are the people that we want. But to it's also branding towards. because I know he loves the islands, but he's from East Tennessee. There ain't no Correct. ocean up there. He, he's an enigma, <laughs> right? Because he's this like multifaceted guy. Yeah. One minute he's singing just a classic There Goes My Life, and which is just country as country can be. And the next minute he's singing, no shoes, no shirt, no problem. So he's had a, a wild multi-decade career, but he's brought people along, I think, in a really great way. And they've done a great job of kind of transcending, okay, this is one chapter to the next chapter. But even as you're doing that, you're saying, I'm a guy who can transcend chapters, which is saying something in and of itself, which I think is interesting. I think Keith does a great job of that. Tim McGraw does a great job of that. Um, and then there are people who right now who have had a song go viral and they're dying for another one to go viral, but they maybe aren't putting in the work um, to bring those people into their story. And I think hopefully that's what has changed it for me is that when I go to shows and we have a VIP line, people aren't the first thing. I don't think people are saying like, oh my God, I love my person. I think it's really cool that they go, oh my God, I love watching your Instagram stories. I love how close you are with your family. I love how open you are about mental health. I love how you talk about being a washed-up D2 athlete and that whole story of going to play college football. And that, I think, is turning people from passive to bought in. And that, I think, is going to be the key as the Internet continues to mature and continues to become more saturated. The people who go deeper instead of wider, I think that's the key to... What do you mean by that, deeper instead of wider? Because you can try to have 10 million followers, right? And that's width, but how many of those people are like bought in, like drive four hours bought in? You'd be better off with 100,000 followers, but every single one of them are as deep as it gets where they would drive anywhere because then you could sell out your local arena in any city that you go to. One has more followers, one has more width, but the depth of somebody who tells their story and who, you know, somebody who's crushing at this right now is Jelly Roll, right? Absolutely. His depth is incredible and we all are rooting for the guy even if you don't like his music which i would be shocked if anyone didn't right but let's play this game you're kind of like i still kind of want to vote still for want him. to root for the guy because he's been through a lot he's been through hell and back and you and he lets you in there's a side of jelly roll that if he wanted to he could have tried to do music and been like 
I just want to, let's like make it about the music. Come on, like we don't have to talk about this stuff, but he did the opposite. He doubled down on the things that he believes in about his vulnerability, about where he messed up. And that to me is where we show people like, oh, I'm human. My diary looks like your diary. But and he, that's important. But this is one of the things that I think he did. Uh, being able to understand when he got in a situation where he did have the opportunity for some labels to start looking at him. He was in a situation where he had leverage. Mm -hmm. And if you go into a label with no leverage, they're going to screw you nine ways to Sunday. Totally. So you've got to realize how much leverage that you have and when to flex your muscles and what you can get away with. And knowing that if it's not the right time, it's not the right time because that, that, that's a big misstep. And, and even going down the independent route, with if you can get major distribution, there, there's a stepping platform that you can go through. I'm just curious, what would it take for you to make that step to a major? Yeah, that's that's a great question, especially after everything I just talked about, right? Because it's like I still see Wait. a guy like Jelly, and he had independent success, but he's now taken that with a label and maximized it and grew it 100x. He leveraged. I, correct, which I do believe in. And I want to make something very clear because for some reason, part of my story has been like, he wants to be the Macklemore of country. He wants to put his middle fingers up to the industry. I actually don't. Yeah. I love all my peers in the industry. I hang out with all these people. I maybe am just the guy who got married a little late because I just didn't meet the right person until that time. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm also not going to sit around and wait for anybody. So I'm going to keep moving as far as I can by myself until someone comes along with a deal that makes sense to me. You know what doesn't make sense to me? That I can do all of this by myself and that I don't need all of the facets of a, a traditional label, yet I would give up 88% of my life, my baby, this thing that I built from the beginning. Still doesn't make sense to me. So let's have a nuanced conversation about, okay, what are y'all willing to sacrifice because you see what I've built and that I have real fans and that I do have leverage. There's very few people that, without going to country radio, can go to their hometown and sell 1,800 tickets or can do X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. But I need you guys to help me take moments into evergreen moments, into, oh, Spencer was one of the guys in the 2020s. I think that's an important way to do that. I can't sit on hot country as long as some of my peers because they have a label that goes, hey, if you want the Morgan Wallen thing, you got to do the blank person. And there's thing. a lot of that leveraging that happens. It's all Game side. of Thrones. Absolutely. It's all chess. I am all not, smoke and mirrors, man. I'm not naive enough to yeah. think that I can be the guy who walks in and crushes the system. I don't want to be that guy, but I do want to do it the right way, and I'm okay with a little patience and getting there a little bit later because I think what I'm doing is foundation building. And, foundation but there's, is but there's also, from, from the business side of it, it sounds like you got a pretty good grip on it, uh, especially if you and just a couple of people are doing most of it. As you grow, what what's the next thing that you would hire that you would let go of the reins of that you would feel like would make a big difference? Would it be your social media uh, stuff? Are you doing? Are you inputting everything yourself? Are you your video producer? Or are you you doing all that? At what point would it be smart for you to let go and say, "I need help with this"? Yeah, I think the social media stuff, I still feel pretty good about taking the reins on. What I need help is like calendar management and publishing and some of those things yeah. where, especially now more than ever, as the like, I think it's a good analogy, the CEO of, of Spencer Crandall Music, I wear like 12 different hats a week. I'm looking at my last week, I'm like, I'm in a finance meeting and then I'm supposed to go like write this beautiful song 
and then I got to go like look at a treatment of a video while I'm finishing the mix of this thing while this thing's in mastering. Don't forget to respond to comments. Hey, make a silly, goofy Instagram story. It's 900 things. I don't think it's time to just like relinquish all that. And I actually think, I still really believe this, that most of the bad record deals or the record deals that go wrong, it's two people planning on passing a baton but dropping it at the same time going you got this right and the other person's going you got this right and they go one two three and they both go to kind of take their foot off the gas and that's where things go right so i'm not ready to like yeah but i'm i would i would say like not relinquishing control adding another piece to your team uh let me give you a couple of stories so back about 2014, I had been I'd self management self managed myself for a long, long time. Did you really? Oh yeah, self managed. Um, I I had went through a deal with my early managers and audited, and a bunch of money was gone. You know the whole deal. So I wound up owning my whole. I got all my publishing back about '92. Wow. And uh, and stayed in house, and I managed myself through Time March's own Coast is Clear, all the way Who stuff. Does? And, and and so what I realized is that a, as an artist that was self-managing himself, I had to, I was called on the shots, but also had to have, had to have a figurehead in town that was out there doing the things that need to be done because you do have limitations as an artist. If you say no too many times, then you get that black mark on you that hangs over your head for a long time. Totally. But but sometimes hard decisions have to be made for the, for the best interest of your career that you might understand why they need to be made but you don't need to be the one saying them publicly totally so, and and sometimes you've got to see where that danger lies i realized about 2014 after years of doing this and, and having office buildings downtown i got to the point i just didn't know what to do anymore mm. because the business was changing so much and it's moving really fast right now one for instance when in 1999 i'd been on atlantic for almost 10 years well I get a call. I'm supposed to be in the studio the next week cutting my, my brand-new studio album. I had the session booked. I was co-producing the record. I had the players, the whole deal, songs picked out, everything ready to go. I get a call from the, the label head that had retired two years earlier that was still consulting and said, we're closing. Uh, we will release you or you have the opportunity to go to Warner Brothers and finish your deal. Dumb me. I'm thinking, well, can I go in and finish my record? He said, yes, you can go out. But you got to think about it. When you move to a new label that has a staff and you're already cutting a record, there's not one person in that label that has a vested interest in you. Right. You're no walking champions, in, right? And, and so I went in and cut a record, and it did nothing. They just didn't know what to do with me. And at the same time, there was a whole lot of other artists. The whole outside of Warner Brothers just collapsed, and they rolled all these people in. Sure. And, and – I, I was I didn't understand that enough because even though I was self-managing myself for a long time, there's still a lot of politicking and, and leveraging things that go on outside of what you do in your day-to-day -day life. They're, yeah. And they're very important. So it was... It's a huge learning curve, and if I had to do a lot of it again, there's several things that I would have done different that I, if I was conscious enough to understand what they were back then. So, I mean, I just, I mean, as as we kind of get to know each other, yeah. it's fascinating to hear what your journey is and, and where you're going to take it. Because sometimes you've got to realize that maybe you're not the best person to sit in that seat because sure. you still have to be the face of everything going on around you. For sure, and part of it is. Even just creatively, it, it burns me out to... It takes the whole other part of your brain. Yeah, like I can't be in a three-hour meeting talking about how we're going to afford the bus and then try to go capture lightning in a bottle with a love song in the same day. It's hard. It can be really hard. So I think 
luckily, I, I can't say enough about my manager, Jeff. Like, it's I'm really not in this alone. The guy is a Swiss Army knife and is genuinely what I think will go down as like an all-time manager when it's all said and done. Am I biased? Yes. But uh, I love that guy. We have an awesome PR team. We have an awesome booking agent. And so I think those things are great. I think obviously the next step would be publishing because that's a huge part of this whole thing. Um, And I think the label deal, what you were just talking about, what I think hopefully I have avoided is there are hundreds of 5'10 white dudes wearing hats. Like, they look exactly like me, right? The difference is I hope that I have built enough to skip the line so that when I go somewhere, it's not when you have a moment. It's we'll go right now so it just gets started. I've watched so many of my friends go, you let us know when you have a moment, buddy, and we'll just, we'll get ripping. Love that. The the, they're they're just saying, yeah, you go ahead and get the ball rolling, and we'll just jump on and ride this right. thing down the hill. What I think I did, which I'm really proud of, is instead of signing and then trying to get the ball rolling, we just went and got the ball rolling. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said about that. I would do it the same way over again. Now I'm just at a point where I'm really intentional about growing my team. Um, my feelers are 100% out. We are having really good conversations. But I also know kind of like what this thing is worth. And I also know I want to be in this for decades. I'm not here to have a song, a moment go away. I, I want to be a guy like yourself where you have this string of hits and, and these moments where people go like, dang, he had something to say for a long time and has something to say for a long time. That's super interesting to me. The way to do that to me is to find a champion who is just as excited as we are. And if that's real, they will understand that certain deals make more sense than others. And and a lot of it is still out of my control. I, we could sit here all day and be like, yes, I'm ready to sign a deal. Or no, I'm not ready. The, the reality is I can only control certain things. What I can control is making the absolute best music that I can. Feeding my fans, like not just as a, some, something that people say, like, yeah. oh, I just, I want to feed my fans. Really giving them what I think that they want and adding real value in their lives. And rinse and repeat as many times as I can. And then when moments happen or when the time feels right to also not have the pride or the ego to go, and I'm going to do it by myself forever. I don't. My way. Yeah, that, that's never, that's really not my uh, MO. Well, you know, I, I learned early, there were a couple of people early on in my career, and they've been scattered throughout just the last 30-something years that were those champions. I think in any situation that you're in, if you don't have that person that's ready to go fight the world for you, you just get lost in the dust because there's so many people out there struggling for such a small space. You can get lost really quick. Absolutely. And don't be naive enough to think just because you get a record label that everybody in those individual departments is the best that you could possibly have. And you have no control over it. Think about this. Every one of those promotion people has a big old plastic card in their wallet with a big fat expense account on it. And when you sign on, they're going to take you out and they're going to buy the most expensive stuff and they're going to take those radio people out and you're going to pay for every single nickel of it. And they're expected to spend so much a month. And you're, whether there's two or three or four acts on that label, 
whoever's on it, you're paying for it. Right. And you have no control and no say over what it is, whether they're eating Wagyu beef or, <laughs> or fried shrimp out of a box. It makes no difference. Right. And that's pretty frustrating, too, when you look at it. When you see at the end of the year and you say, I sold this many records and I'm, I'm not getting any money. Oh, we've got to keep it in the pipeline for all those bills. Mm -hmm. Those are frustrating things that you have to think about when you yeah. step into that. There's pros and cons for each. I, I, what I lack maybe in grow power of moments so like we've had a few moments that you're like holy shit this is going to change my life and it does it could have probably gone a little bit further with a label but i also have speed and i also have um <laughs> i get to look at everything that i spend and i can go why are we doing that well no, and you we don't, don't have you do won't that. have speed on a label <laughs> not at no. all yeah. and that's it the grass is always freaking greener i have friends who have number ones who are going I'd kill to be independent. And I have moments where I'm going, I'd kill to be with a label. So the reality is it's it's kind of a nuanced conversation that I think I'm I'm a interesting guy to look at because I do feel like I'm hacking in the forest. You know, it's me and guys like Cooper Allen and, and AK, Alexander K. Like we're in an interesting spot. We're selling hard tickets, we're streaming real numbers. And we understand that we are worth something that is maybe different than the traditional 360 record deal. But we don't want to hang out so long that you're the person who becomes the TikTok guy that everybody forgets. So we understand, or I'll speak for myself, I, I understand that there will be a time and a place. I, I wish I could sit here and be like, off the record, we're so pumped about this person or whatever. We just continue to do what's in our control, and and the fun part is we haven't gotten close to slowing down. If I felt that, I, I also I feel like I have the self self awareness enough to go, you know what? Let's go. Let's go. Kind of tuck our tail a little bit and go. It, it's time, guys. We we want to, but even as I say that, I'm like no, because then you have no leverage. I, yeah. I I do feel really confident in that the things that actually matter are putting out badass music that really matters to people and to tell your story in a great way. Everything else will figure itself out and the right people won't be able to ignore that. Like, like in a marriage, you, you focus on becoming the best version of yourself and that attracts the best version of a partner. I'm focused on building the best business and the best artistry that I can that will attract the right label head and champions and, and whatever. Do you think, uh, the TikTok world that we're living in has any correlation to what uh, uh, American Idol or The Voice was because that was the hot thing there for a while. But golly, I, I've heard about what Carrie's deal was. You know, she won the whole thing and, and how much she owed them, like firstborn or something, back to American <laughs> Idol. And then the 360 deal and the end yeah. of the labels. I, I, it, have have the labels moved past those things? I don't know if they carry as much weight. They didn't have as many superstars that came out of that whole thing as what they were hoping. Just because you won American Idol don't mean didn't mean you were going to be successful. A lot of them didn't didn't survive for whatever reason. Right there, there was novelty. Right, this happens with everybody. Like I was lucky to be on TikTok early, and so for a second, everyone's going like, "Ooh, shiny new," and I'm going somewhere with the follow up after you. Yeah, so Carrie Underwood. That was new and shiny. That was like a worldwide phenomenon that nobody had ever seen before. Um, and the reach was crazy. And I don't know. I mean, I'm sure she wishes that she had more dollars from those moments, I'm sure. But at the same time, 
She, she has a lot be, more than she had when she got on American She Island. wouldn't be Carrie Underwood without Absolutely. it. So she's probably grateful. There's probably some, like, natural, like, yeah, you know, I put in a ton of freaking work, and it, it was me singing the songs. I wish I could add some more money. But I don't think she would probably trade that when she's selling out Bridgestone, whatever. That old saying, I'd rather have a piece of something than all or nothing. Yeah, it, yeah. exactly. So, so if, if TikTok, if, if it got banned right now, what would your next step be? It, to me, there's, like, always a conversation of what's the hot platform, whatever. I've done what I've done on Twitter. I've done what I've done on Instagram. I've done what I've done on TikTok. I will do it when it's schmick-schmock. I will do it when it's <laughs> schmickety-schmock. It will continue to change. There are people, Dane Cook famously sold out Madison Square Garden, a comedian, with a MySpace post. If you make a MySpace post right now, I don't think you're going to sell a lot of tickets. No, I don't Platforms, think anybody's going to Platforms, they come it. and they go, or they stay. All that's out of my control. What I can do is try to really understand, okay, where are the eyeballs and ears where's the real attention let's talk about that where yeah. when do you get your numbers in how, how how do how do you digest that information do you get a spreadsheet once a month do, do you download analytics uh are you gathering stuff from spotify from each individual platform are you cross-referencing sure. i mean what how do, you, do y'all sit down and do that every week no and and i would totally understand if people do that for me personally the only way i can do it is by being a practitioner and being in the trenches I can't, personally, I, I've never understood the, like, hey, let me know how my stuff is doing. You guys kind of figure it out. I'm looking at my Spotify for artists every day. I'm looking at the analytics on my TikTok and on my Instagram and on my insert whatever platform is going on. Schmick schmock. Schmick schmock. schmock. <laughs> because, to me, I can watch in real time. I can go, and this is why I think the Internet's so brilliant, and this is why I think the artist will continue to have more and more power in the future because I can post something tonight that is my driver's license moment and it can completely change my life because I've watched the internet for six years and so I know if I wear a white shirt, it does a little bit better. If I film it too, the sun's going to hit me this way. Like I do know some of these things and I also know on Spotify what songs work and what don't work. So I also know when I'm writing, I'm like, I understand why I want to write something like that, but and not to say that I still don't make something if I'm not dying to make it, but I understand my audience really well. Do you think uh, songs are seasonal? There's certain songs that would work in the fall over certain songs that would work in the summer? Sure. I mean, look at Keith Urban. The yeah. guy, it's, it's four on the floor 90% of the time with a banjo. It makes you want to jump in water. I don't know why. It's like chemical. The dude has, he went into a room with blackboards and he figured out the formula and said Eureka and he did it, right? Uh, Chesney, again, when you're when it's the summertime and you're going to a stadium, like he's the guy that I think of to go like, yeah, it's summertime. He literally has a song called Summertime. Um, there are other songs that, something like Colder Weather by Zach Brown Band, like that's not going to crush at the summertime festival at, Stagecoach. I saw that song for the first time at Red Rocks, and it was kind of chilly out. It was like, you know, the, the stars were warmed your out. soul. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. It's, it's like one of the most memorable moments of my life. And I wasn't going poof, poof, party time. It was like a soul reflection kind of moment. And for some reason, that is that feels a little bit more seasonal to me. But people, this is what's weird, people are going through different things in different seasons. So even though Keith Urban 
for me, might be the summertime. For other people, they're like, yeah, but the wintertime is when I work out. So I listen to four on the floor. So it's tough to like try to gauge that stuff. But I do think there's a little bit of it. Let's go back and, and talk about some personal things. So uh, what college did you go to? I went to go play college football at a small D2 called Colorado Mesa okay. in Grand Junction, Colorado. Yep. And a couple shoulder surgeries later and finding Bad out. Bad hits or what happened? I got my you linebacker. Hands. What'd you play? I was a nose guard. I was like, uh, I, I took up the whole couch at one point. Really? Uh, yeah, I was a big boy. What and, did you squat? Uh, the funny part about my weightlifting, I, the probably the strongest I ever was when I was like sixteen or seventeen, because I just kept getting hurt after that. I let's see, bench press was probably. I broke a school record doing one eighty five thirty two times for the high school combine. Squat was something in the fives, which I don't quite remember what that was. And I was a strong guy, but I wasn't, like, the strongest guy. I feel like I was just scrappy. Yeah. I was, like, the guy that people would kind of, you know, we'd play the D1 prospect guy who's going to play at Stanford. He would tower over me. But I just talked relentless shit the entire game. And I would get into people's heads, and that's kind of our whole our whole high school football story. It was super fun. And then Christian McCaffrey scored five touchdowns on us in a semifinals <laughs> game, and and I say goodbye to high school football. Yeah. Um, showed up to college and ended up moving to linebacker because I was smaller, but I got two really big shoulder surgeries, and they were just like, you know, at that point I had broken my hip, my hand, my ankle, my collarbone, five concussions, two shoulder surgeries, every finger on this hand. Tore the ligaments in my wrist, tore my quad. Like, I was so done being hurt on, on crutches, yeah. in a sling. And it was, like, at the exact moment where I found music. And I just started to get this hunch. I'm like, wait, you're telling me that I don't have to wake up at 5 a.m., hit other really big guys, and I can sit in my room and, like, write songs? This seems like a really nice trade. Um, and I still love fitness, and I, I love all those things, but... Man, football as a as a student athlete is such a full time job. Yeah, it was so different than high school. I was kind of falling out of love with the game right as I was falling in love with music. So it kind of felt like a natural switch. And luckily, my parents and my coaches were all like, "Dude, we totally get it. Nothing but love." So I had a ton of support, which was great. What uh, What were those early musical influences? I mean, traditional stuff. A lot. I'm sure. Um, if you're like, I mean, most people listen to a little bit of everything, but. A little bit of everything. I mean, I, I always say that like I was a LimeWire kid. I don't know if you guys are familiar. Like, I don't know that term. LimeWire was a website like right after Napster, and you know, will I probably get like indicted one day for saying this? Maybe. Um, no, it was like a like a kind of free music download site. My older brother had it, and he uh, crashed you. like nine of our computers in our house. My parents would be like, "Get off of freaking LimeWire!" Like, I don't know what you're talking about. 100 gigs of like everything so my parents are country music fanatics i don't remember them listening to anything else and my brother was like anything my parents like all like the opposite so he's like screamo and edm and super underground hip-hop and so i just it never was weird to me to flip from one song to the next and be like uh don't take the girl straight to like i don't know like bootylicious definition whatever insert like the most <laughs> Hip-hop of hip-hop or, like, Skrillex when Skrillex was coming up and um, pop-punk and stuff like that. So I'm a huge Justin Timberlake fan. That's been a huge influence. I love R&B. I just – I've always gravitated towards great singers. Yeah. So um, anybody who could just run – I mean, I remember listening to Gary LaVox growing up be like, 
what the hell is this guy doing? Like everyone's doing this and he's just, he's on another level. And, um, so I was super influenced by country storytelling. I just remember if I wanted to feel something like in my soul, I'd listen to country music. And if I wanted to like vibe or like get ready for a party or ready to play a football game, I would turn on something else. I feel like I always kind of define the difference between the two is like country music is the script and pop or hip hop or some of these other things um, are oftentimes the soundtrack. So like the script is Spencer enters the truck. Spencer says this to the girl. He, you know, drives down this road. I've always loved that style of storytelling. And then I love when Justin Timberlake says, I got this feeling inside my bones. It goes electric wavy when I turn it on. I don't know what that means, but it makes me feel stuff. And it feels like the soundtrack to any happy moment. So I always felt like the two didn't really need to compete. And when I got into music, especially without a label and just on the internet, I was like, well, I'm just going to kind of make what I think is cool. And what I think is cool is pulling, you know, I, there's a, a great saying that I love that just talks about transcend and include. Like, what are the parts that you feel like you can't live without? And then the stuff that's not for you to leave behind. So I felt that when making music, I will say I, I went through my phases of trying to be a Diet Coke this or a Kroger brand that, you know, it's natural to just try to write the songs that you hear growing up. And then I moved to town and a few people were like, who are you though? Like those songs sound like other people, but like if they're, you know, if you had to ride in your own lane and stand apart, what would you sound like? And then that's kind of when things started to turn over for me, which the irony is I, I thought that would be the opposite. You know, what, uh, what were you, did you major in? What'd you study in school? I have a marketing degree yeah. from Colorado state university. God bless that school. And I, I had a lot of fun there. I ended up finishing with like a year left. I moved to Nashville. The, all those marketing classes help a lot. I'm telling you, they really give you a good perspective in, into really understanding how people view things. You know, you, you think about what you see when you get in your car, if you drive 30 minutes to downtown, how many things are that you're confronting that if you see a billboard on your drive downtown in the morning, it's like, oh, there's a concert there. I'd love to go see that. And you're seeing all this other stuff. By the time you get done with the day's work, you've forgotten about most of the stuff you saw that morning. So it's all about how many impressions can you get from those things. Yeah. Being able to see the world through a marketing lens is really fascinating, and I try to do that a lot. Yeah. I mean, and, and I even go back. It's like uh, I watch the uh, full documentary on Coca-Cola. And it's a fascinating journey to see all the things that they went to. And Coca-Cola really was never about selling sugar water. They're nope. selling a lifestyle. They're selling the American dream. They're selling, selling the dream about how great it would be. And if you're going to be great, then this needs to be totally. a part of your existence. All that's very fascinating to me. And that is actually kind of where this conversation began, which I think is fascinating, which is like you're not just selling songs in the key of this at this BPM. You're selling... Like, if Coca-Cola says, we are the American dream, I'll just keep using him. Kenny Chesney's like, I'm your summer escape. And Keith Urban's like, I'm your four on the floor, you know, wild Australian guy. We're all actually selling this, like... You're a can of peas, man. That's what, <laughs> what I always called it, man. You're just a product on the shelf. And you got to brand it, you got to market it, you got to pack it, you got to protect that brand. In a grocery food. store Absolutely. where there's a thousand different brands of peas. Absolutely. And why are you the one that's going to get grabbed? Like... Liquid death right now. Because LeSueur has a silver wrapper on it. Right. Liquid <laughs> I mean, death right now is the water, right? It's canned water. It's absolutely no different than any other water in the world. It's their advertisements, it's, man. They, they stood for something. They're like, okay, if the market's here, 
we'll go here because we want to be the people who are subversive and say something different. And that pays dividends. It's risky, but it does pay dividends. And so you got to decide, okay, am I going to be the guy who steps in line? Am I going to be the guy who is adjacent to something else, but with a twist? And that's why it's hard to do music right now, in my opinion, because there's very few things that haven't been done. There's so much saturation. And so I think that's the, the more authentic you become, the more unique you become. Uh, unless, unless you can throw a little shock factor in at the right time. Sometimes shock factor works too. You know, whether it's musically or something that you've done that just creates that firestorm. You never know. But for sure. Yeah, I bet it's a, it's and for it some goes people, back to the thing that. about how do you follow it up. Right. You know, how do you really follow that up if it's a if it's a, a ditty or something musically that you did that's just a little bit out of your character, but it strikes a chord with people, then you're stuck with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a scary thing, man. Can be. Boys. Let's let's go down some rabbit holes. I know I know it. you're. I, I love I love Gary Vee, man, mm-hmm. and Jordan Peterson and yeah. some of those guys, man. I know you kind of go down some rabbit holes too. It's an interesting time. I went down a lot more rabbit holes, uh, you know, over COVID in the last few years. Uh, and most of the stuff that I was watching got deplatformed for some reason. I don't know why, because <laughs> a lot of the things that I was watching are just gone. I had the shirt with a Q on it. I yeah. Had, oh yeah. <laughs> what kind of stuff do you go down? Um, I, I love the Gary Vee businessy stuff. I mean, a lot of stuff that I'm saying is kind of repurposed versions of all those people, and I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, it's lo- positive karma, but re- a realistic view of the marketplace and what you're trying to do. He's he's very blunt and direct to the point that he's offensive to some people. But For if sure. you really want to hear the truth and you want to get a perspective on how to really look at the reality of what's going on around you, he's a good barometer. Well, and the truth can taste like shit sometimes. Sometimes. When absolutely. you look in the mirror and you don't like the way that you look, there is an easier route to just disassociate and go, nah, I don't care. You know what tastes like shit? It's shit. Go. <laughs> Dang it. I spent the last year eating wrong and I didn't walk or I didn't work out. It sucks. But if you taste it now, can you move the airplane three inches? You know, there's like a classic uh, in Atomic Habits, the book he talks about an airplane that leaves from the West Coast can, with like literally like a five inch uh, differential in their angle, one will land in New York and one will land in like Virginia and DC. And that's a huge gap. And so can you change the trajectory of your life with one hard conversation? Like I, I don't know who said this, but I, I've, I think about this a lot, which is like the measure of someone's, how great someone's life is, is most likely measurable in the amount of uncomfortable conversations they're willing to have with themselves and others. How often can you taste shit and go, dang it. And understand like self-awareness is just it's hard. We don't want to see that we're doing something wrong or we don't want to see that, you know, we might have hurt someone's feelings or we, we also don't want to see that sometimes we're the bad guy. We're not the first player. We're not the, the superhero we think we are. We could have potentially went down a little bit of the wrong trajectory, so it's time to adjust. And those are hard pills to swallow, man. But I do think, if nothing else in this life, I, I want to be the guy that can look in the mirror. And no matter how hard the pill is to swallow, I... I will attempt to go after that. Pride is one of the most difficult things to manage in your life. And it's something that really as a young person is very hard. It took me years to figure that out. It took me a long time to get over my pride mm-hmm. and, and getting into this business. Uh, there's a lot of pride. You have to have some arrogance 
and some cockiness totally. that goes along with it. And, and I would say the same about uh, going into the field of acting or just about any skilled profession where you have to have some kind of bravado because if you don't, nobody's going to believe you know what you're doing. Right. It's like how do you hold – a lot of the things that really impact my life are actually like rather paradoxical. How do you hold two things at the same time and not say one of them is more important? I am everything. I am the man. I deserve to be on top of the mountain. And I'm not shit. I am humble. Who cares? It's not that big of a deal. And not drop either one at any time, but to use them more as tools when you need them to go, okay, I'm in health right now, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use them both versus letting the pendulum swing to, I, I'm nobody, I, who cares what I have to say? Or being the guy when you walk in the room being like, do you know who I am? Hello? Like, nobody wants either one of those. There's health in balance and there's health in kind of understanding that you need both. And they're, they're not at odds with each other, even though they feel like they're at odds with each other, which is what like a paradox would be. And those are, yeah. to me, the things that usually I kind of glean the most like, it hurts my brain, but if you can kind of wrap your head around it, you're like, hey. This, this kind of reminds me of uh, a book I read recently, uh, the, the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm practicing it. But I'm just curious, what have you come across things that you've realized that you've been giving too much of a fuck about and kind of let those go and For sure. focused on other things as you've gone into your music career? That's a great question. Um I mean, what's worth worrying about and what it, what really shouldn't be on your mind you at all? You have to curse so much, Scott. I know. It's the name of the book. <laughs> Mark Manson. It's just a book. Yeah, yeah it's, that's right. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a good book. Uh, yeah, man, that, that I think will be my life's work is to, you know, like the serenity prayer, right? Like, God grant me the ability to understand what I can and can't control, basically, yeah. like the, the super short version. Um, been super into, like, stoicism recently talking a ton about control and to understand that like for me to sit here and like, let's even talk about some of the stuff we talked about to really worry so much about a label when my end of it is genuinely this much, I can control what I can control on a daily basis. Can I look the best that I can make the best music that I can feed my fans, all that stuff. If I can check all those boxes why worry about external things that I genuinely can't control? Similar to the weather, similar to somebody dying. It's just realities of life that I genuinely, if I wanted to or not, can't control. So much of my suffering comes in imagination. And that's a, a huge stoic virtue is like how much of our suffering is worrying about something that may or may not happen when you could just be here enjoying the present, this kind of like, you know, some people would call it like the eternal now. Right now always exists. It's always a, now. such a hard thing when you're living in a world where you're living off clicks and, and people are that big perspective that's out there on the internet and, yep. you're, and you're trying to gauge, how do you deal with that negativity? That's, I, that's one of the things that I just have a hard time with because I have the tendency to get pissed off. Same. So there's a lot of things that they just don't show me. And it's, and it's not that I don't allow myself to get pissed off. I think it's like building an immune system, right? Like if you have a great immune system, it's not that you don't get sick. It's just that you get sick less often and you recover faster. So I'm trying to build my immune system to the internet and to things I can't control. So if I'm in traffic and a guy cuts me off, I'm still going to say some bad words. But I hope that I, with some kind of like thoughtfulness and self-awareness, can reel myself in and go, why would I allow something out of my control to ruin my day? 
I have the ability to not be offended by anything. You can say I'm not country or I'm blah, 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 blah in all my comment section. It doesn't bother me one bit because it's out of my control. And two, this is kind of like a Gary V-ism, to really understand who are the people who are going around spreading hate. They are miserable people. Amen. Or people who are, you know, Confused, what, mentally them, ill. Yeah, we can think of them as like people with like swords. I often think of them as people who are like bleeding out. It's a cry for help. They're going, you suck, man. What they actually want genuinely is like, hey, are you okay? Do you need help? Because somebody ripped them to shreds and they don't know how to deal with it. And so they're crying out. They tried getting some help probably a, a normal way and no one helped them. And so they're like, I got to revert to calling people horrible names on the internet or spreading just terrible things on people's comment sections. And to me, I don't let that affect me because I, one, I've, I hope that I've done enough work on myself to understand that's not really who I am. So that doesn't really affect me if someone's like, you're, you're a piece of shit. You don't care about your family. I'd be like, I just know that's not true because I do care about my family and I back that up in my life. So what is it going on in this person's life where they're miserable enough to say that and then to have the empathy for those people? So instead of letting it penetrate anything in my psyche, I just directly go to like, are you okay? Can I hug you? <laughs> Who's in your circle that, that will call you down and say, okay, we need to check, you need to check yourself on this particular subject. Who's there sure. for you? Jeff Jerry, my manager, is really good at that. Does your mom still do that? Oh, yeah. My mom still does it. Uh, Relentlessly. (laughs) My dad is really good at that, too, because he's a quieter guy. So he's if you're talking about something and he doesn't know or he doesn't have an opinion, he's not going to chirp. He's not going to chime in to chime in. So when he says something, it carries a lot of weight. So it's very rare that he would ever do that. So like a few times in my life where it's like, hey, I feel like this is happening, or have you thought about this? I know that he it's coming from a good place, and, and not that my mom is in the same way. Um, they're both great. I have a really awesome group of friends that I kind of found late moving to Nashville. I had my group of friends when I was kind of more in like my party stage, and then I was out of my party stage, and all of a sudden those friends stopped answering my calls, which is uh, not surprising at this yeah. part of life. Um, but now I have a group of friends that really care about my well-being, And we all do a really good job of kind of like soft calling each other out. Just really nice, gentle, like, because I love you, I don't, to me, this is like how I think of it. Someone you don't care about, you won't tell them there's something in their teeth. It's just like an awkward conversation. The people that you love, like if, if my sister walked in here and she had something, I'd be like, Hey, come here. I'm not going to let you walk around with that giant piece of pepper in your teeth because I love you. Not because I want to like embarrass you, and so th- those are the people in my life that I, I feel like do a great job. I think my my sister is a great example. She gives zero f's about fame or whatever I've done. She's at my hometown show, eighteen hundred people screaming at whatever. She comes up and she's like, "Your fly's undone." <laughs> All righty, this is why you have family and friends because they keep you, and they just don't care. I have friends who they want to know, but not really, which is such a blessing. They're like, "Dude, how's the stuff?" Cool, so you want to play video games? You want to go on a walk? You want to just go sit and do nothing? Like, those are the people that you need, especially, I'm sure that you've experienced this. Your world keeps getting bigger and bigger and more chaotic in uh, notoriety or money or blah, 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 blah. 
and you need people who knew you before those things because they already said, I, I love you no matter what. It's an unconditional check-in, and that's that's rare. It becomes sacred. And and what I've learned over the years, too, because I still there's – there's a couple of people from back home that I still stay in touch with that I grew up with and a handful of guys from college. Uh, but you also have to be – a brother in the same ride of being able to say, man, I'm worried about you. I'm here and I'm, I hadn't seen you in a while, but if you're going to have friends, you got to be a friend. And that's so freaking important. Isn't that true? Like we can't expect people to reach out if you're not. And it's easy to, out. it's easy to get lost in all this. Yeah. And, and, and you just lose perspective. And I, I'm as guilty as anybody. There was a period that I went through it, that I lost all perspective of who I was. Mm. Who, who are you? I mean, as you if you if you looked at yourself from outside with all that you've done, what does your music say about you? Well, I mean, I, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit about all these positive things you want your fans to perceive from you. But who are you musically? I mean, what what yeah. what is what does your music say about you? I mean, for me, just as a perspective, uh, mine was always about uh, I was always kind of the victim. My heartbreak songs come from the music that I listened to growing up. Mm -hmm. Things like. Uh, uh, George, the early George Strait songs, You Look So Good in Love. It's all about she did me wrong, she left me, she broke my heart. That was my whole theme with a lot of the biggest records that I had. Sure. And you got and, and that fit into that spot at that time and place. That was yeah. my thing. So what's your thing? Man, I, I think, I hope my thing is telling stories in an authentic way that hopefully feels like so specific or like a different way to kind of if a gem, you hold it up to the light, it shines one way, right? But if you continue to turn it, the light shines differently at almost every angle. And I want to be the guy that just continues to turn the gem and goes, you thought about it like this? You thought about it like this? Like, I think a good example is that I have a song called My Person in which people use at their weddings, and it's this big fairy tale love song. And I have a song called Made in which I feel like it's a love song, but then I turn the gem and went, okay, if, if one of them is I've never been more sure that you're my person... The other is soulmates aren't found, they're made. And it's almost like the same feeling that you're trying to get people to feel, but because of different reasons. One is like we're in the moment, we're at our first dance, and like I just want to think about how perfect this is. I think what's cool about made is made is almost the road to get to my person, right? Because the whole song is about the only way that we can do this is choosing each other every day. We might bend what we won't break. We bounce back better because soulmates aren't found, they're made. And that's a song that I don't hear right now. I don't hear anybody going, hey, real love takes hard work, even though we know it's true. Yeah. And I'm proud to be the guy that maybe says something a little bit differently, and especially in the production world. I don't pull any punches, and I, I'm okay with not being the most country guy that ever existed, if that means I use tech cats and 808s sometimes and vocal chops because I love how it sounds. I want to talk about the production techniques and stuff that mm -hmm. you like to use. Uh, did you did you study Pro Tools? You're pretty versed in Pro Tools? You have to go outside for all that. I I went to the, the hard knock school of music of just trial and error, yeah. just trial by fire. So I moved to town. You know, my friends call me Troy Bolton. He's the guy from High School Musical because I was the guy who played football and then started singing, so they, they love that joke. But the reality was I didn't do music growing up. I had I taught myself how to play the guitar on YouTube. So I moved to town, and you're sitting in rooms, and guys are going, so how do you want this to sound? And you're like, good. I want it to sound good. <laughs> you're like, what does that mean? Because you, as we all hey, know. And, and, and it could. You could take the same song 
and do an acoustic demo of it and give it to five different artists and and everybody would cut a completely BPM different. BPM would change, the key Absolutely. would change. One would be a heartbreak ballad, old school Johnny Cash style. Another would become an EDM. Look at what Johnny Cash did with Hurt. Right. I mean, perfect. Example, I mean, and right? and being able to take a song and having the presence of mind enough when you go into the studio about what, how do I take this and make this mine, especially if it's an outside song. Right. I. This this might be a pride thing, and maybe I'll go down in flames for this. I love the fact that I've only put out songs that I've written, unless it's a cover. Like I put out a cover of yeah. Shania Twain's "You're Still the One" and a Justin Bieber cover because I was like, oh, this is really cool as a country song. But the songs that I like put out as original songs, I'm a writer on because. I tell that story to my fans. And so when they show up to shows, they know that every lyric they're hearing is something from my actual life. Those things to me are so valuable. That's the deepening thing of going, this isn't just four guys who sat down in a room in Nashville and said, is this cool? Is this a hit? Although you're trying to do that in one way or another. But it's more, how do I tell my story? So that when you hear the song, you're going, that is Spencer Crandall's life. I think that's really cool. Um, as far as the production and, and where I kind of got cut my teeth and stuff, it was I moved to town and I just knew that the only way I've ever learned anything is by trying it. I have to become a practitioner. I have to get my hands dirty. So I just went and I hired these guys who are dear friends of mine, Josh and Ethan, just moved to town. And I was like, can we just cut all the songs that I'm writing like acoustic mixtape style? Like, don't overthink it. A few strings instruments, like country instruments, and then we'll just go, like, drum machine. Just kind of, like, super chill. Very, like, sa early Sam Hunt. Because I just wanted to understand. I would sit That's there and go. When I listened to some of your stuff as I was prepping for this, it, it, you did have a little Sam Hunt feel. Just Especially at the beginning. Yeah. And I, I just felt like I could knock out more at-bats doing that. So, so I would sit there and go, why did you say sidechain? Explain sidechain to me. You said EQ. What does that mean? Okay, hold on. Someone said reverb. Explain reverb to me because I had no idea. By the end of that project, I had at least enough to go, okay, now I want to cut full songs. By the end of that project, I understood, okay, now I need to have more of a through line through this production because I was using kind of different track guys. And then once I found that, I asked myself, what if I was 100% me? That was the first line of this third album that I put out, lyrically, was what if I'm 100% me? And that was... What if labels don't exist, genres don't exist? What if I just made what I want to make? After that, I felt like I had finally been like, okay, now I'm like ready to say something. And So have you done three, three full albums? Now I put out my fourth at the end of this fall. So have you, have, have any of those projects, have you actually gone into a studio with a full section of players and cutting oh, a full yeah. record? Okay. So pretty much the entire last album was that way. Um, Is that the first one? That you really done with, and I mean, it sounds like some of the early stuff you just kind of piecemealed it in a little bit here, a little bit there. Totally. Yeah. So I would say album one was like me and two dudes in a basement, just yeah. trying stuff, trial and error. Like I listen back to that album, I'm like, oh, I understand what we we're trying to do there. Okay, that's where I learned this. Second album was called more because I was like, I just need to do more of this. I just need, I want my fans to have more, and I need more at bats. I wasn't even trying to like break into the stratosphere. I was like, I just need to learn how to do this. What's been cool is by letting my fans into that story from the get, just going like, I'm just a guy, I'm kind of learning this. That's the depth thing. And they've kind of, I have people who have followed me on Twitter since like 2014 because I was like, hey, I'm going to start putting out music. And I told that story that way. And I think they've come really endeared to that, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah, this last album we had, 
you know, you have guys like Dave Dorn who are like CMA musicians of the year. And then we're working with a guy, his name's Lalo and Brad Hill, who they're awesome. And, and we're also going, okay, but what would Justin Timberlake do with the loop? Give me a different idea. Okay, now, now play the steel over that. Now chop the steel up. Mm, let's just keep it really traditional. This one, let's go super acoustic. I feel really comfortable that I will be the guy who pushes the envelope, even at times where people are like, that was too country on that song, or that's not country enough. I'm okay with that as long as I really want to listen to it in my car. That's the barometer. And I think I've gotten lucky enough now to, you know, you, you, you have the fear. Is this too risky? Is this whatever? But I've gotten the feedback from the internet, from my people, from my peers that like, hey, you're on to something. So that always feels good, right? It's, it's one thing to put out music and not have streams and go like, shit, are we doing the wrong thing? It feels really cool, especially this last album, to take a big creative risk and for it to pay off. And people not only go, this is cool, but like, when can we have more? That's really cool. So Scott is an amazing piano player. He's my piano player on the road. He's not only a video guru. And Derek, we call him Junior. That's just something that stuck. Junior is a great guitar player. He plays second guitar on the road. And we actually met. He was an engineer at Sound Emporium. I cut a couple projects over there. So we stole him away from the studio. And uh, so it's uh, having these guys out there on the road that really bring their own perspective of, of, you know, when we get on stage, even though you've played the record a thousand times, every person that you change changes the dynamic of that band. Totally. What, What section are you carrying on the road and how many dates are you doing this year? What was the first part of the question? What, how many? Pl- what's the section of players that you're carrying on the road? How many? What's in your band? What are you traveling yeah, yeah. with? So we're doing a drummer, a guitar player, and like a utilities guy, and then just lots of tracks and bass in the tracks and all that Got stuff. Got you. Okay. It'd be cheaper. It is very um, much cheaper. Yep. Um, Don't get any ideas. We did. <laughs> yeah, we did 23 dates. Jeff, yell at me. 23 in the fall. 26 in the fall. Jk, and then I think 13 or 14 in the spring. So we had a tour that, you know, to be honest, you're talking about like, how do you gauge? We didn't know when we put the tickets on tour or on sale for this last tour. It was like, we think we're going to fill these rooms. And then we were kind of proven right, which is like the best feeling in the world. Like to go, can we actually sell the tickets that, you know, like our agent hopes that we can or that people are like kind of expecting that we can now after one, two, three, four, five songs having moments. Um, and then we got to extend that into the spring because it's like, why would we stop doing that if that's such a huge part of our story? And when I talk about adding values to f- adding value to fans, I think the number one way to do that is to give them the most badass live experience that they could possibly have so that when they go home, they're like, I think that was the best concert of my year. Like, that's how I want people to leave every show. I want them to go on this emotional roller coaster with us where one minute they're chugging a beer and the next they're crying in it. And I want them to tell everyone they know, like, you're a fool if you don't come see Spencer Crandall when he comes to Grand Rapids. I think that's awesome because all my heroes are that way. Like, yeah. I think of Kenny and Keith and Tim and Garth. I mean, I saw Garth at like third row and what was once the Pepsi Center in um, Denver, now Ball Arena. And you're just looking up there and being like, he's in a league of his own. This guy is a freaking jungle cat let loose on stage. He's doing nine shows in like four days doing matinee shows. And it's because he loves his fans. Yeah. And that just, it just, you can, it's palpable. It's so real. And I think that's why we love the road. That's why we love going and playing shows. And what's, uh, what's your age demographic? What's the bulk of your fans age-wise? 
That's so interesting. Somebody asked me that recently, and it, it is kind of all over the place, which I kind of love. Yeah. Like, I think statistics would tell you 18 to 35-year-old female would make the most sense, especially if you look at, like, TikTok following or whatever. But we have a lot of guys that show up to shows. We have, we had, it was, you know, these little people's first concert at our show this last weekend. You're like, you're like 12 or 8 or whatever. And then you have, we have these, like, older couples because they used my person as their vow renewal or they heard made on the highway, you know. So it's, it's kind of at a cool place where it really is all over the place. Different sizes, different shapes and colors. And I love that. I love looking out in the crowd and being like, that person has never listened to country before, and that guy came here thinking he would hate it, and they both left loving it. That's cool to me. That's awesome. So, Junior, ask him a tough technical question. Technical question. <laughs> I was going to go with that. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> um, would you rather go to jail for a year or go to jail with a Rubik's Cube and you can leave when you're done? You can't take the stickers off. Can't take stickers off. Obviously, I'm assuming no YouTube, no like learning how. Jail. <laughs> I feel you. I mean, my like my gut is that I would you know buy a phone off of some sketchy guy, but I'm not even gonna go there. I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> I'm going to say. Wait. So, but there's a penalty if I don't solve the Rubik's cube. You have to stay in there until you solve it, or you oh, can just for take like the life. year. It'd be a life term for me, so I'm taking the year. <laughs> so, what, so what you're asking for is, do you think? Wow. Do you think you're smart enough to figure out how to solve a Rubik's cube by yourself in under a year? Now this don't shows, have a lot else to do. <laughs> this is a tough one. Just for the funsies of it, I, I gotta just give me the give me the cube. I think I could do it, which makes me probably so arrogant, but I just want to see if, if I could get her done. If that's all I'm doing every day. Maybe at least you're getting lucky. You're just turning stuff. And you're like, wait, oh, my God, it's done. That's the goal. Who knows? It'd be a life sentence for me, man. Wow. I can't do it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, fast forward to me being old and decrepit. I can't even turn the freaking My arthritis is so bad. I can't yeah. turn it anymore. <laughs> oh, man. Scott, you got anything, brother? Uh, well, I was just wondering just how high can you sink? How high can I sing? Yeah. Is that fun for you? Well, yeah, you could go a lot of places. You know what I've I've done, which is, it's a blessing and a curse. When I'm in the writer's room, you have so much confidence to go, let's let's push this. And then you're in the studio and like, let's get this ad lib that feels insane. And then it's the third night of the weekend. And you're going like, fuck. That third I, night's rough, isn't it? Why did I write this <laughs> yeah, song? Rough. Like One of my biggest songs <clears throat> is probably in my career will be the hardest song I have to sing. It scratches both ends of my range like genuinely the tippiest top of my high range and the tippiest top of my bottom range so you know i'm looking to write way more like monotone choruses i would love if my next hit was just like right down the middle um I, that's a great question i'm i'm not the technical boy so i i can't i've done it before where you kind of keep going up on the piano um High enough to where people make fun of me on the internet, and that has to say something. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, give me all of your uh, social addresses and everything. Tell everybody where you're going to be. Let's touch on all that. Let's do it. At Spencer Crandall on all the things, TikTok, Instagram. Uh, my Twitter's at Spency Boo because I made it when I was 14. Nice. Uh, okay. I never changed it. Okay. So there's that. And then y'all can come see a live show. I'd love that. SpencerCrandallMusic.com slash shows and we got a bunch of really fun shows coming up so love to see you there 
Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Spencer Crandall, everybody. Thanks, man. I appreciate you a lot. It's a pleasure. Enjoy myself. Thank you, man. Thank you.